0: Welcome, everybody. This is the University of Applied Research and Development's podcast in Emergency Response and Risk Management, and I'm delighted to have the honor of Tom Godfrey with us today. He's the Emergency Operations Manager for the Operations Partnership. Hey, Tom. Hi. Great to have you with us.
1: Thanks, good to be here.
0: Why don't you tell us about your role, what you're doing, the partnership, and how you came to be there?
1: Sure. Currently, I'm an Emergency Operations Manager um, working on a program called Tackling Deadly Disease in Africa project. It's funded by UK government through DFID. Um, so I'm placed by the operations partnership into DAI. Um, we're focusing on six countries in Africa at the moment. More more broadly, in terms of helping them to improve their national health security, um, improving their response architecture, and working with Ministry of Health ministries of health in each country. We've obviously had to rethink with with COVID-19. And at the moment, we're trying to gear up projects across six countries. Um, So Chad, Niger, Mali, Uganda, Ivory Coast, and Cameroon. Um, And work with local NGOs in those countries to deliver activities which will help to reduce the spread of COVID-19 in those countries.
0: And is that a shift in the goals of the program or is it a new program?
1: It's shifting from um, ori- originally we were intending to have a mechanism to intervene early on in epidemics. So it was an early response mechanism um, focusing on the ability to spot new epidemics at grassroots level amongst the communities and support grassroots organizations to intervene together with district health authorities, um, in a timely fashion, we'd spotted a gap in terms of funding in the early stages of epidemics. Funding tends to come later on when the situation is much worse. Um, So, so yeah, we've had to rethink, um, and and we're responding in a a different fashion because of the exceptional nature of COVID-19.
0: And in the countries that you're working in, is there a a sudden burst of contagion or is it being managed what's happening with your project countries
1: the worry the worry in those countries is that we have much less visibility than we would in in perhaps europe um, and it's largely because of the limitations in terms of identifying cases and, and testing widespread testing so you know, when when you hear a number from from cameroon for example where there's already quite high numbers you can ex- you can expect that the real numbers are Several orders of magnitude greater than the numbers that are being reported, so it's hard to get a, a really good picture. Um, but but certainly the the, the 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 pandemic is going to affect those countries very very severely, um, and and the, the worry is that in those countries we've got very limited health infrastructure, and it's not just the impact of COVID nineteen; it's also the impact on other diseases which will be neglected. For example, vaccination campaigns may be disrupted. Um, we may see people don't have access to, to basic primary healthcare services that they would have been before. So we expect more mortality rates indirectly to, to, to rise as, as well as a result of this.
0: So what sort of things do you focus on when you do these projects? You're looking at people, you're looking at funding, you're looking at infrastructure. Explain to us the, kind of the nuts and bolts of what you'd look at.
1: Yeah, I mean, the project that I'm on now is probably different to the humanitarian work I would have been doing with Save the Children. This project is very much focused on um, supporting local organizations to to deliver um, through various activities that would be aligned with the Ministry of Health's COVID-19 contingency plan. Um, there's, There's various pillars to those plans, which includes public health messaging, uh, training of health workers provision of ppe um, case management supporting with isolation um, and 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 those types of things you know measures that we're seeing in, in, in all around the world supporting those measures to be taken and to you know to to be put in place at a timely fashion um, in some of these countries where it's harder to to deliver those things
0: so you've had a wide experience. You've been in Southeast Asia where I am, and now you're in London. So in your travels and in the projects that you've done over the last period of time, where do you see the persistent gaps in emergency response or emergency management?
1: Um, yeah, I, I I spent three years working in the Singapore office, which is, say, the children's regional office. We, from there, we oversaw several dozen Significant emergency responses, including the Nepal earthquake, the high-end response in Philippines, and the Rohingya crisis in Bangladesh. Um, previously, I've been working, yeah, on Syria, on the Syria response, um, Haiti earthquake response, um, the Libya response in Tunisia, um, and various other responses around the world. In terms of persistent gaps. Um, I think we're getting better um, as a humanitarian community in terms of coordination. Um, the One of the persistent gaps is probably linked to the grand bargain and the commitments there to implement increasing proportions of our work through local partners. And I think that we're not very good at doing that in a considered way. And I think that um, the tendency still is that International NGOs um, leave it till very late before aligning partnerships, and partnerships with local actors tend to be um, fairly utilitarian. So the, the, the partnership would be for the duration of the of the response, and at the end of the response, it might end. Whereas if we were serious about about making this more sustainable, we would invest in those relationships much more beforehand and much more afterwards, and, and help. Help, help local actors to get to a point where they're perhaps less dependent on the international NGOs to support them to deliver. Um, I think supply chain is another challenging thing in any any crisis. Um, and there's a sort of big drive to improve civil military coordination, um, which I've been involved in both in Asia and elsewhere. Um, there's a lot of military assets which can be repurposed for moving moving aid, and that needs to be properly coordinated with the UN and, and the NGOs as well. Um, so, I think that for me, the, you know, the, the, the key is coordination, um, and there's room for improvement on many fronts, both in terms of civil coordination, in terms of coordinating with local actors, and NGOs ensuring that they coordinate properly with national governments.
0: What would be one of your most successful projects or responses that you've been involved in, and what made it successful?
1: Um, There's a couple of examples. Um, I particularly liked our response in the Pakistan floods in 2010. I was down in in Punjab, um, based in Multan, and there were um, very serious floods affecting huge parts of the population. And and the reason that I think it was a successful response is the same um, as, as as some other responses I'm thinking of, and it's because we, well, as we say, the children at the time we were running a multi-sectoral multi-sectoral response um, across seven core sectors, which was you know providing food, but also providing medicine, providing child protection support, um, education support, shelter, um, and I think that. Uh, you know, when you can provide a holistic response to, emo- to an emergency situation, I think that the results are always much better. Um, we call it integrated programming. So rather than trying to achieve maximum beneficiary numbers by perhaps providing food to a million people, perhaps with the same budget, you can target 100,000 people and they will receive food and shelter and education and health support you know, across you know proper quality response across many sectors. Um, So that's something that I know say the children and other organizations are wrestling with um, because to to deliver a quality integrated response, your perhaps beneficiary numbers um, will be less, but the overall response will be of better quality. And it comes back to where coordination is really important. So quite often we're seeing, I'm thinking back to the Haiti response, which got a lot of bad press, but we did some good things too. Um, I was there from from day four we were right at the beginning we divided it up geographically between not just international militaries I was down in Laogan where the Canadian military were running things uh, but also by NGOs so we had districts each and and that allowed us to take a a section of the community and deliver aid in all all different types of sectors Um, so, you know, you'd, you'd go into a part of a camp and you'd, you'd see, let's um, say so the children would be providing all the basic services for them rather than it being coordinated across different NGOs. And the same was the case in Cox's Bazaar. I was up there for the um, for the Rohingya refugee response and, and we were given, you know, I think it was the UN were um, coordinating the NGOs to divide up the sectors of the camp and... Once again, the best approach was deemed to be um, giving NGOs responsibility for a specific sector and and requiring them to, where possible, and where they've got the strength, to provide services on multiple aspects at the same time. So that that tends to work quite well.
0: So I guess the the discussion is, do we wanna have maximum people get food, or do we wanna have a smaller number get food, shelter, education, protection, and so I guess that is a hard, hard discussion to have with different values perspectives. What do you think is the better way to go?
1: I think it, it's a question of targeting properly um, and, and you know, defining your beneficiary selection criteria at the beginning of a response is really key. Um, quite often NGOs, and I know I'm talking from, say the children perspective, would prioritize female-hearted households, pregnant and lactating women, and disabled, um child-headed households um you know trying to prioritize the most vulnerable of the population um and ensuring that they they're prioritized for, for aid opposed to as opposed to a sort of blanket approach which is quite often imp- applied in refugee camps And i don't think we'd ever want to have a situation where it's a, it's a trade-off um mm. where, where you know we would reduce the numbers who um who overall get aid i think it's a question of organizing amongst the actors, because these days in, 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 you know, big, in big emergencies, there are an enormous number of actors. Um, and quite often, coordination is as much of an issue as, as, as you know, the, the amount of resources that are available. Um, so if you can get coordination right and get targeting right, then quite often, um, that's the foundation of a really good response.
0: Right. So Tom, if someone was wanting to make this their career to do the things that you've done to work with you, what would be some of the things that you would suggest someone new who's just maybe heading into university or heading out of university, training experiences, what should they be looking to do to build their own internal capacity to do a good job?
1: Um, I think I think really to, to go into the inter-humanitarian world, I think you've got to be passionate about it. So I think that you know, you'll you'll already know if if you're passionate about it, and I think if you are, you'll you'll already be reading about it. You'll be well versed in you know what's going on, and I think that's a massive that gives you a massive head start if you're able to 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 to, to talk about that convincingly to potential recruiters. Um, I think secondly, obviously relevant relevant degree helps. I did a I did a sorry, my son's just walked in working from home. Um, well, I did my masters in international development, um, which, which, which obviously helps helps too. Um, I think the the other thing is you know being prepared to be flexible and perhaps offer your services um, pro bono for a period. I think that helps to a lot of people to get a foot in the door. Um, a lot of NGOs have got you know, obvious budget restrictions, and if you've got Know, parallel expertise and transferable skills whether that's sort of accounting or HR or you know, remembering that the, these NGOs run like any other business in many ways they need the, the basic skill sets that any business needs. If you've got transferable skills that you can offer to, to an NGO I think um, that can be a good start. I started off um, as a volunteer I was in Tanzania and I I offered my my services to save the children and work, work for them for for free for three months um, and um, and subsequently got, got a job with them. So although obviously not everybody wants to or can afford to work for nothing uh, for long periods, if you can sort of offer, offer services, even if that's sort of advisory whilst you do your other job, um, that, that can be a good start and get you those connections.
0: Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. Yep. Hey, so Tom, if people want to follow you and look at what you're doing and look at the projects and... Yeah, just, just keep up with you. Where's the best place or where are the best places to follow what you're doing and the projects you're involved in?
1: Sure, I'm not particularly prolific on social media, um, but feel free to look at LinkedIn. Uh, on there, there's a link to the, the, the project I'm currently working on. Um, and yeah, if, if anybody has any questions, feel free to, to ping me on LinkedIn.
0: Tom, thank you so much for your time. You have a fabulous day working from home with the kids.
1: <laughs> Thanks very much.